Well, good morning, everyone. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to or go to Matthew chapter 9. And as you're getting there, um, just wanted to express my uh, appreciation for being able to take a little bit of time off. Um, there were five Sundays in October, and I preached one of them. So I need, needed a break, got a break. Thank you very much. Uh, it's good to be back. All right, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. So let's read those verses. I'm going to back up to the previous verse and begin reading from Matthew chapter 8 and verse 34 down through chapter 9 and verse 8. And behold, all the city came out. Remember, this took place in the region of the Gadarenes, Gadara. All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So we continue here, Matthew's Holy Spirit-inspired narrative account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, he uh, gives us something of the setting there in verse 1. So let's, let's look at that, the setting, verses 1 and uh, 2. Remember that this is taking place in the region around Capernaum. And just to get our bearings, so this is modern day Israel. Here's the Gaza Strip uh, where all the turmoil is taking place. Um, the Sea of Galilee is up here on the north. And then zooming in, so Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, right, right, right here. So in chapter 8 and verse 34, uh, Jesus had been down here in the region of the Gadarenes, and then he and his disciples got back in their boat and went back up to the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and uh, that was his home base during this phase of his ministry. That's why Matthew refers to it as his own city. Matthew didn't know Jesus, when he was uh, 
roaming about in, in Nazareth, that's his boyhood home. Uh, but during this phase of his ministry, when Matthew got to know him, we're going to see that next time when Jesus meets Matthew. But uh, his home, his own city was Capernaum. And then reading on, verse 2, regarding the setting, Matthew adds, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Very straightforward statement from Matthew. Absolutely no fringes, no uh, details, but it turns out that uh, there's a lot more behind this statement. For, for one thing, here we're told about a paralytic, uh, but this wasn't the first paralytic that Jesus had encountered. Back in chapter 4, Matthew recorded for us the paralytic, or, or that paralytics were among the people healed by Jesus. He healed a bunch of people, paralytics were among them. And then remember in chapter 8, Jesus healed the centurion's servant, who was a paralytic before Jesus healed him. And then there are going to be more, it turns out. So a paralyzed man... And uh, Mark and Luke record the same event, Mark, very vividly. So uh, keep your finger here in Matthew's Gospel and look forward to the next book over, which is Mark. And notice verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Mark adds much more detail and drama to the scene. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And then in verse 5, that sinks up with Matthew chapter 9. And when Jesus saw their faith, dot, dot, dot. So as you can see here, Mark adds a lot more detail. And it is quite a scene. So here's Jesus. He's in Capernaum. He's at a house. Is it Peter's house? We're not told exactly whose house it was, uh, but there was quite a crowd there. People are gathered together to hear Jesus preach the word. And um, there are these four men who have a paralytic with them, and they want to bring him to Jesus. Why do, do they want to bring him to Jesus? Because Jesus has a reputation for healing all kinds of diseases, including healing paralytics, raising paralyzed people. And so this seemed like this man's great hope, but there was no route to get to Jesus because of the crowd. But they were so desperate, they brought their friend to the roof of the house, removed some roof tiles of all things, 
and lowered this man in front of Jesus right in the middle of the sermon. It's a very dramatic scene. And that's the setting. And uh, really the heart of the passage is, is this, um, a stunning pronouncement from Jesus. So back in verse 2, Jesus saw their faith. That probably, well, it certainly refers to these four men who brought the paralytic man to Jesus, but it probably also includes the paralytic man himself. There's no indication he's being dragged to Jesus against his will. He's in on it. He wants to be healed. And he's also heard of Jesus, no doubt. And so their faith is probably uh, the whole entourage, including the, the man who is paralyzed. So Jesus sees their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's a stunning pronouncement. For Jesus to make. It's a stunning pronouncement for at least a couple of reasons. For one thing, the paralytic man did not go to Jesus to have his sins forgiven. He went to Jesus to be healed, to be raised from his paralysis. And yet, the first thing Jesus addresses is the forgiveness of his sins. And I think Jesus is telling us something by that. As far as everybody else was concerned, as far as the paralyzed man himself was concerned, the most important thing in his life was his paralysis. The most important thing for God to address in their minds was his paralysis, his disease, his sickness. But from God's perspective, including God the Son, the most important matter in this man's life is the forgiveness of sins. And it's not that his sins... His particular sins were directly responsible for his paralysis. That's not what Jesus says. The words don't come out and say that. And Jesus does address that mistaken understanding in another place, John chapter 9, in the case of this man who was born blind. And Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus says, it's not his sins or his parents' sins that are to blame for his blindness. It is this way so that the glory of God might shine through him and his situation. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 9. And the same thing could be said here as well. Now, there is a, a role that sin plays in sickness. 
and disease and death and suffering. It's the root cause, actually, of all such things in this world. When Adam and Eve went against the command of God and ate the forbidden fruit, they fulfilled the warning from God, dying you shall surely die. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they brought death into the world through their sin. And so death, disease, suffering, war, arguments and quarrels and all manner of uh, just negative things that we experience in this life. The, the root cause ultimately is sin. But it's not that a specific sickness or a specific trial can be traced to a specific sin. Sometimes that is true. God chastises his children. But certainly not always. And that doesn't seem to be the case here Jesus doesn't say that. But the second reason why Jesus' statement was so stunning is seen in the reaction of the scribes in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes, remember who the scribes were, they were among the Jewish religious officials, uh, they were responsible for the law, its care and keeping, copying. They were experts in the scriptures, custodians of the scriptures as far as the Jews were concerned. Some of them were present. And some of them said, not out loud, but to themselves. This man is blaspheming. Why would they think that? Because men, people, do not have the right to say, my son, your sins are forgiven. It is not man's prerogative to forgive sins. Oh, it's true. We can forgive people who sin against us. But ultimately, all sin is against God. That's why David in Psalm 51, when he confessed his sin of adultery and murder, he said to, to God in his prayer, against you and you alone have I sinned. And so when it comes to sin against God, people do not have the right to say, your sins are forgiven. That is the prerogative of God and God alone. And he reveals himself that way to us. So in the Old Testament, for example, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, this is God displaying his glory before Moses. And we read there in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity 
and transgression and sin. This is part of who God is. This is part of the glory of God, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so from the perspective of these scribes, who does this Jesus think he is? To say your sins are forgiven. He's putting himself in the place of God. Blasphemy. And guess what? If Jesus is merely a man, they would be right. But Jesus is not merely a man. Matthew began his gospel by telling us that his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the God-man. And so, unlike any other man, before his time, during his time, or after his time, Jesus actually does have the authority to forgive sin. And Matthew gives us another glimpse of Jesus' deity in verse 4, where he writes, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, You don't know my thoughts. I don't know your thoughts. Unless we open up our mouths and share our thoughts. God knows our thoughts. He knows our words before we even utter them. He knows everything about us, including the thoughts and intents of our hearts. That's part of God's omniscience, the fact that he is all-knowing. Nothing can be hidden from him. And Jesus, who is Emmanuel, is also all-knowing. And so even though they didn't say anything, Jesus knew their thoughts because he's God in the flesh. And then he goes on to say, why do you think evil in your hearts? And it was evil to accuse the Son of God of blasphemy because these scribes, being experts in the Old Testament scriptures, should have known not only that the Messiah was coming and the time was right, but that Jesus is him. They should have known. And so rather than receiving their Savior, their Messiah, they rejected him and accused him of blasphemy. And it's not because of lack of information on God's part. It's because there's evil in their hearts. They had an evil heart of unbelief. And now the scene is set up perfectly. The drama comes to its height in verse 5. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? 
the assumed answer is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's all invisible. It's, it's in the spiritual realm. It's between the person and God. There's nothing that we can actually observe. But to say to someone, rise and walk, is visibly verifiable. The person doesn't rise up and walk, well, then your words are just empty. But if the person does rise up and walk, wow, what authority. There's power behind those words. And that's exactly where Jesus was going. And so, beginning of verse 6, he continues, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that is what his goal was that they would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's Christ's um, objective for us right now. He wants us to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite self designation. That's what he likes to call himself in the Gospels. And this term comes from the Old Testament, mainly Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there, the prophet Daniel has this vision. And in his vision, he sees this son of man, this apocalyptic figure who's presented before God, and God is called the Ancient of Days. And this Son of Man himself shares divine attributes. And so Daniel says about him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man figure is, is sovereign. He has a kingdom. He's to be worshipped. And he's eternal. And so Jesus identifies himself as this divine man, the son of man. But then he even makes it more intense. He, he ups the ante. Second half of verse 6. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. You can imagine the drama. There's a crowd. Remember, there's such a crowd that this man and his four stretcher bearers couldn't even get to Jesus. So there's quite a crowd. The roof has already been torn apart. There's Jewish religious leaders present. 
Jesus has already said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Then he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What is going to happen? The drama was so thick. Notice verse 7. And verse 7 brings us to a powerful demonstration. And he rose and went home. Kind of understated, wouldn't you say? Understated, yes, but powerful, yes, as well. Because for a paralyzed man to rise and go home means that he was completely, supernaturally healed. He was helplessly lowered through a hole in the roof by his friends to get to Jesus. But he got up out of his stretcher and left the scene under his own power, healthy, whole, and healed. Notice the progression, by the way, in Matthew's account of Jesus' display of divine power. Remember, that's been the theme that began at the beginning of chapter 8, right after, right after the Sermon on the Mount. There's this progression in Matthew's account of Christ's display of divine power. He has power to heal people from their diseases. He has power over the forces of nature. Peace, be still, and the wind and the waves obeyed. He has power over unclean spirits. And he has the power to forgive sins. That's a lot of power. That is power that only God has. And it's a lot of power, the power to forgive sins. Notice that's at the top. The forgiveness of sins is at the top of this pyramid of power, the pyramid of power, ahead of even the forces of nature and evil spirits and healing. That's because... To forgive someone of their sins affects their standing with God now and for eternity. To say your sins are forgiven has eternal consequences to a person. This is why William Cowper in his hymn, There is a Fountain, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Uh, William Cowper lived from 1731 to 1800. This is why he uh, repeats these words. So listen to the first stanza. It's a familiar hymn, I believe. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood 
lose all their guilty stains. And Cowper wants to get that point across. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And in case you didn't get it, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That is a lot of power. That's the power that Jesus Christ has. The power to forgive sins. Notice verse 8. What was the response of the crowd? When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. I'm thinking that in today's culture, when we're exposed to something great and awesome, people might go, oh, ooh, and then they applaud. And then it holds their attention for five and a half seconds until the next act or the next show or next thrill or whatever. But this was not an act of entertainment. This was the display of divine power. This was a pronouncement from heaven to this man that your sins are forgiven. And then tangible, observable, objective proof that that man who said those words has the authority to say those words. In other words, they were in the presence of God. And they were afraid. This is reminiscent of chapter 8 and verse 27. After Jesus calmed the storm and the men on the boat, including the disciples, marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So you can imagine the crowds thinking, what sort of man is this who has the authority to forgive sins? They glorified God. Maybe they didn't have a full grasp of biblical Christology. Maybe they couldn't articulate the gospel. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. But they knew that God was in it. They knew that God was behind this and that Jesus had come from God. He was speaking for God. He was representing God. He was acting like God. So they glorified God. And then Matthew adds, who had given such authority to men. And this doesn't refer to, to all men or any men, but to Jesus as a man. That's what that means. Jesus is one of us. And in their minds, God had given amazing authority to men in the person of Jesus. And it would be more accurate to say that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he's the eternal God in human form. 
But still, Jesus is a man. And in saying that, they're correct. The crowds are correct. Jesus is more than a man. He's the son of God. But he's not less than a man. He's the God-man. And this makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be our Savior. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul wrote that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. Jesus is uniquely equipped to be our Savior, to be this one mediator between God and men. Because Jesus is God, then he's able to represent God in his mediation. For example, when Jesus died on the cross, his death was of infinite value because he's an infinite person who died. In fact, he was able to die because he became a man. Infinite value to save his people from their sins. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Because that man who died on the cross is the God-man. And he's able to give us the very righteousness of God through faith. A, man, a mere man can't do that. An angel can't do that. But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, can and does. The moment you place your faith in him, God imputes to your account, he credits to your account the very righteousness of God as a gift. But then Jesus is also a man. And because Jesus is a man, he's able to represent us before God. He obeyed God himself as a man. He rendered human obedience to God in our behalf. And when he died on the cross, he suffered in our place for our sins. So it's important that Jesus is both God and men. But the takeaway here is that Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And God proved that. Jesus proved that by healing this paralytic man. And so how can we glorify God in our response, like the crowds did? If Jesus is who he is, and he does what he does, he has the authority that he has demonstrated, then we can glorify him by taking him at his word, by going to him for the forgiveness of sins. And that's not just for unbelievers 
That's for believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's to you, believer. I know that that's really comforting to me. I, I wish I didn't uh, have to stand up and say that over the last week, the last 24 hours, even this morning, I've sinned. But Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And if you're an unbeliever, what great news this is for you. You may have come in here thinking that your greatest need is for your investments to not get eaten away by inflation or whatever. You may have thought that your greatest need is to have your marriage improved, your relationships improved, things at work to go better. You may have assumed that your greatest need maybe is to be healed. And healing is a legitimate thing. God does heal. And that's good. Jesus healed. But even that is not your most important need because someday you're still going to die and stand before the Lord. Every healed, in, every healed person in the Bible died. Your greatest need was the same need that this paralytic man had, and that was to have your sins forgiven. The world wants to tell you and the rest of us, there's no such thing as sin. Sin is nothing. Sin is a myth. Sin is psychological. It's subjective. It's, it's emotional. It's part of the trap of religion. All I can say is, listen to your conscience. Your conscience knows better. Your conscience accuses you and tells you that you're a sinner. Your conscience convicts you of sin. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you need to be forgiven. And once again, the great news is we have a Savior who forgives. You believe in him, you trust in him, you're clean, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. God says he takes your sins and he casts them into the depths of the sea. God says your sins and your lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Because Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and for me. And just before Jesus died, he said, it is finished. And then God raised his son from the dead, showing that his death in behalf of our sins is enough, that it was effective, that it is done. We all have sins that need to be forgiven. There are no sins that are beyond the ability of Jesus to forgive. 
Let us all come to Jesus. Let us all cling to him, trust in him, confess our sins to him, and we will be forgiven, every one of us, for all of our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of eternal life and the gift of the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your son, for his mighty deeds, for his amazing teachings. But thank you for what he accomplished on the cross. God, as it were, died and purchased the salvation of his people with his own blood. So, Lord, would you please, even as you have promised, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, forgive us of all of our sins, and may we leave this place rejoicing, knowing that our sins are forgiven. And would you help us, Lord, to live God-glorifying, Christ-exalting lives as we cling to him, as we glorify Christ, as we seek to represent him in a dark and fallen world. We pray in his worthy name. Amen.